from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Luisa Beck from the Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at the Washington Post. It's Lori Artani over at the Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, February 3rd. Today, an expansion to the travel ban, the new reality of the pardon system. And can a president be impeached twice? So last week, we got an expanded version of the travel ban. You may remember the travel ban. It was one of the very first things that President Trump signed when he came into office. And this is the protection of the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States. We all know what that means. Protection. The initial version banned citizens from a group of predominantly Muslim countries from entering the United States, and it was quickly criticized as a Muslim ban. I'm Abigail Hauslunner, and I cover immigration. So last week... The administration expanded the existing travel ban. Uh, So now instead of just seven countries, it includes 13 countries. And the six new ones that they added are Eritrea, Kyrgyzstan, Myanmar, Nigeria, Sudan, and Tanzania. So what does that mean for people in those countries, like that they just can't come to the U.S.? Well, technically, citizens of those countries can still apply for tourist visas, for temporary visas, but they are largely now blocked from immigrating to the United States. It's largely an immigration ban. And so for the record, that's like a quarter of the population of Africa that we're talking about who could potentially be affected by this new iteration of the travel ban. Right. When you're When you look at those countries, Nigeria is the big one to keep in mind. Uh, Nigeria, aside from being the most populous country in Africa— is also the largest source of immigration from the continent to the U.S. There's a huge number of people. There's a huge Nigerian immigrant community in the United States. They have relatives, obviously, who would come to the U.S. to join them on immigrant visas. That is all off the table. And also a large Muslim population. So so are people viewing this new part of the travel ban as an extension of this idea that President Trump is trying to keep out Muslim people from immigrating to the U.S.? Yes. Administration officials leaked these countries about a week before the administration actually came out with the new ban. And ever since the leak, you know, the same civil rights advocates, Democratic lawmakers uh, have been talking about this as, you know, just an expanded version of the Muslim ban. And so has the administration given any indication of of their reasoning for why they're adding these countries to the list? So I was on a call on Friday uh, with administration officials, an official from the Department of Homeland Security and an official from the State Department, who spoke to reporters on the call on condition of anonymity. This is something that the administration likes to do. They almost never speak on record these days. Uh, And they went through their rationale uh, to the extent that they said they could for each of these countries. The way they justified it was that 
they have national security concerns rooted in these countries' ability to adhere to U.S.-defined standards for information sharing, uh, for passports, the quality of passports, you know, whether they use electronic passports that can be scanned with a chip, you know, whether they share a certain level of information about their citizens, you know, about criminals or suspected terrorists uh, and flight manifests and so on. And the officials said that these countries basically are falling short of these expectations. That leaves, you know, really worrisome gaps that potential terrorists or criminals could exploit. You know, that if if the sort of vetting standards aren't up to par, that bad people could potentially, you know, get passports from these countries and come to the United States. Now, what doesn't entirely make sense about this is that, you know, obviously – there are a lot of countries out there that are, you know, sort of at failed state level or have very, very high levels of corruption, you know, that are not on the list. Uh, and you would expect there to be certain vetting gaps there, too. But also this ban, this extended ban for these six countries only applies to immigrant visas. So temporary visas, you know, for example, tourists from Nigeria can still travel to the United States. Mm. So to me, you know, that raises the question, well, why are you unable to properly vet immigrants, but you can vet temporary travelers? And I posed that question to the officials on Friday, and, you know, I didn't get a great answer. And I think that we need to see this all in the context of other recent changes that have happened in immigration policy over the last few weeks and months. Right. So you may have heard of the remain in Mexico policy that has forced tens of thousands of asylum seekers to stay in Mexico while they await their asylum hearings. You know, the administration has also come out with new rules redefining public charge. There's been the expansion of the travel ban, obviously. Uh, you may have heard recently as well new rules uh, to try to stop what the administration calls birth tourism. Uh, that's women coming to the United States to give birth uh, because you can automatically get citizenship if you're born here. So how would that play out practically? Like that people who are trying to come as tourists to the U.S. who happen to be pregnant, they would be like pulled aside and pre prevented from, from entering the country? I spoke with State Department officials who said that, you know, we don't know what CBP is going to do. We don't know what CBP's guidance is, but this this would be an assessment that would happen, you know, when someone is coming into a U.S. embassy for their visa interview on the front end. Uh, what isn't clear is, you know, how would a consular official really be assessing if the woman they're interviewing, you know, is pregnant and is planning to give birth in the United States? Uh, and we didn't really get any clear answers on that. The State Department official who was speaking to reporters recently said that, you know, consular officers would use a, quote, totality of circumstances to evaluate a woman's, you know, birth tourism plans. He said they would ask the woman questions, um, but he wouldn't rule out, you know, using physical characteristics to it, you know. Straight up looking at women and being like, she looks pregnant. I need to ask her more questions. Right. Yeah. And this is a question a lot of us had. Are you going to be looking at women, uh, you know, looking looking a woman up and down saying, well, hmm, she looks like she might be pregnant. I guess I'll ask some follow-up questions. And, you know, we really didn't get a clear explanation uh, of of what exactly is in bounds and what is out of bounds, uh, except that the officials said 
you know, they will not be doing pregnancy tests. And then there's also been this discussion about a change to the public charge rule, which I'm not exactly sure what they mean by public charge. So public charge is language uh, that has been in the law for a long time. Uh, It basically means or traditionally meant someone who is almost entirely dependent on the state uh, for their livelihood. They've recently redefined that for immigration purposes to mean, you know, anyone who has taken advantage of some form of public benefit, you know, uh, at some point. Basically, they they really lowered the bar for what counts as public charge. Uh, and where this is critical is for people applying for green cards. That is permanent residency. That's the last step before you become a U.S. citizen. Uh, and what they're saying is, you know, if you've been a public charge at some point, if you've taken some advantage of a public benefit, it would include Medicaid, food stamps, what people would commonly refer to as welfare. I think when you look at all of these different immigration measures together, it's hard to read them and get a sense other than that this is all an effort to keep brown and black people out of this country. Because some of them are kind of contradictory, right? That that you have this change to the public charge rule that seems like it's aimed at reducing dependency on U.S. resources and on social services. But then at the same time, you're trying to block Nigerian people from coming here. And as we know, Nigerians are often some of the most educated and most successful immigrants to the U.S. and the least dependent on things like social services. And so what is your read on what these policies together are aiming to do? That's certainly a criticism that we've heard consistently from advocacy groups and from Democratic lawmakers who have called this, you know, the ban and all of these policies have accused the administration of, you know, really rooting these policies in a white nationalist agenda. You know, administration officials obviously say that's not the case. They're about modifying, you know, or updating the immigration system. But as you noted, when you have this blanket ban, it has kept out a lot of educated very successful people. You know, we have examples of Iranian and Syrian scientists, you know, Libyan doctors, engineers and geneticists and so on, who are not being allowed to come to the United States or aren't allowed to bring their spouses or their children. So it does raise questions about, you know, the motives or overall effectiveness of these really wide-reaching bans. Abby Hausloner covers immigration for The Post. What is the presidential power to pardon, and how have we seen President Trump wield that power during his first term in office? So the pardon power is bestowed by the Constitution, and it's practically unlimited. That power refers to the ability to do two things, to give someone a commutation, which means shortening the sentence of someone who's currently in prison, 
for a pardon, which generally applies to someone who has already served their sentence and now wants to regain some of the civil rights that are taken away by a federal conviction. I'm Beth Reinhard. I'm an investigative reporter at The Washington Post. How's that for an autograph? Okay. President Trump has pardoned less than a couple dozen people have either received pardons or commutations. And many of them are familiar names. They're especially familiar if you watch Fox News. President Trump issued two pardons yesterday, one to Patrick Nolan, a former Republican state legislative leader, and the other to my next guest, Conrad Black. He has plans to grant a full pardon to conservative commentator and author Dinesh D'Souza. You may have heard of Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Do the people in this room like Sheriff Joe? That was Trump's first pardon. I'll make a prediction. I think he's going to be just fine, okay? The very controversial former sheriff from Arizona. I stand by my pardon of Sheriff Joe. And some other names that maybe were not household names. Alice Marie Johnson, you see her here rushing into the arms of relatives, was released after 21 years in prison. And I think Alice Johnson is a really striking example because on Sunday night, this woman was the star, essentially, of President Trump's Super Bowl ad. I want to thank President Donald John Trump. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. And I think it's worth pointing out that the reason that Alice Johnson first came to the attention of President Trump is because of Kim Kardashian, that she became this kind of celebrated cause for Kardashian, who eventually advocated to President Trump that that she be released. Right. She's one of the few, quote unquote, ordinary people, but not ordinary in that she had a line into the White House. She had Kim Kardashian going to bat for her. How it all happened was I reached out to Ivanka and she immediately got it. The ad also is a little misleading because it makes you think thousands of people have been pardoned or received clemency, which is not the case. There's really only a handful of people who have received pardons, who have not either had a connection to the White House or some kind of a special appeal to Trump's political base. So why did he want to report a story on how President Trump is using his pardon power? I realized that there's an office in the Department of Justice, the Office of the Pardon Attorney, and many people have no idea that this office exists and what it does. And, you know, that its task is to vet the petitions that come every year from thousands of people seeking pardons and commutations. And for decades, the pardon office has acted as sort of the first gatekeeper. Your petition goes to that office. It's assigned to an attorney who investigates your case and, you know, determines whether you meet certain guidelines, whether you've demonstrated remorse, whether you've rehabilitated yourself, And they make a recommendation, and that recommendation goes to the deputy attorney general, who's the number two official at the Justice Department. And then those recommendations go to the White House Counsel's Office, who then, of course, takes the final recommendation to the president. So there's a whole bureaucracy, a whole pipeline that has been operating, I wouldn't say efficiently, because anyone who's familiar with the process will tell you it's 
long been criticized as slow moving, but the pipeline has existed. And for the most part, presidents respected that pipeline with a few exceptions. But that has changed under the Trump presidency, that the way that this office is functioning and the way that it is used by the White House is different. Right. And from all the people that I've talked to, the White House is essentially pretending that this office doesn't exist. It's ignoring it. It hasn't shut it down. It hasn't cut its funding. What we have now is President Trump, you know, just making decisions, as frankly he does in so many aspects of this administration, that really seem to be on the fly based on, you know, the last person who we happened to meet with in the Oval Office or political allies from celebrities like Kardashian or a segment he just saw on Fox News. And what do the folks in the office of the pardon attorney say about the fact that now the way that pardons are happening completely bypasses them and doesn't give them any say in yes or no, this is or is not a good candidate for pardoning? I think there's a basic fairness issue, even though it's perfectly legal for him to do this. If the president is pardoning people based on who they know and whether that is going to curry favor with his base, that means a lot of ordinary people who may be much more meritorious are left waiting. Many of Trump's pardons have come under pretty heavy criticism that the people he chose were not worthy, that they hadn't shown remorse, that they hadn't even served a day in jail. Sheriff Arpaio was pardoned one month after his conviction. If you file a petition, they won't even look at it until five years after your conviction or time served. So these other people are getting you know, a free pass from the rules based on money and access. And did you talk to some of the attorneys who work inside this office? What did they have to say? So people who work in the pardon office generally never speak to the press. I managed to get Larry Coopers, who ran the pardon office for the first two and a half years of President Trump's administration, who had left the office, to talk to me on the record. And he described it as very demoralizing. You, you know, work really hard to find sort of the needle in the haystack, the person who, you know, made a mistake and and was unduly punished and has, you know, worked really hard in prison to better themselves and how that is obviously lost when all of your hard work five days a week is basically just sitting on someone's desk. How has this new approach from the Trump administration affected the actual number of people who are pardoned or whose petitions for being pardoned are even considered? The numbers are very low right now, especially if you look at denials. Now, you might say, well, who cares if they're not processing denials because those people are not going anywhere. Well, a lot of people whose request is denied reapply, and in many cases, they're successful. So if you don't get denied, you can't reapply. In fact, you have to wait a year or in some cases, two years to reapply. So people are anxious for an answer. They just want to know, am I, am I going to get it or not? They feel like they're waiting in limbo forever. They're, they're just in limbo. And 
you know, our analysis shows that close to 13,000 people who are in that situation that are just waiting and waiting and waiting. And did you talk to some of these people? We did. We talked to three inmates who have applied for commutations. They're trying to have their sentences shortened, which in some cases could mean, you know, they're time served, they're freed tomorrow. And one of them happens to have a line into Kim Kardashian. So he's hoping that's going to be his ticket to freedom. The other two inmates don't have that kind of connection. One woman I talked to described handwriting her petition in her room, her unair conditioned room, sweating on the petition, you know, puts a bunch of stamps on it and just crosses her fingers and hopes for the best. And there's no way for her to find out whether it's viewed positively, viewed negatively, been tossed in the trash. Like, she just has no idea. And that is how it is for thousands of people. Now, granted, many of those people may not be deserving, but there's been a lot of new thinking about mandatory minimum sentences, especially with regards to nonviolent drug offenders. And many of those people were simply addicts. And has the White House said anything about the fact that they're ignoring this pardon office that makes it possible for a lot of people to get considered for this kind of mercy? The White House has declined to engage with us on the record. We've sent them a long list of very detailed questions. Trump has said more than once, people are deserving pardons. I want to give more of them. And he's raised hopes. We have 3,000 names. We're looking at them. Of the 3,000 names, many of those names really have been treated unfairly. You know, this is a group of 3,000 that we've, we've assembled. And I would get more thrill out of pardoning people that nobody knows, like Alice yesterday. I thought Kim Kardashian was great because she brought Alice to my attention. Alice was so great. And but even though there is excitement and hope from the fact that President Trump is talking about this publicly, the fact that this office is basically sitting there unused is reason to be a little bit less hopeful. Right. They get excited if he says something about it, and then his actions show that that he's not moving quickly. These petitions are not being processed. But I think that this story is so interesting because you can look at something like this pardon office and the fact that people for many years have had to wait a long time to get considered and, and vetted or denied as, as part of this process. You can look at this as like a failing of bureaucracy, right? And that what President Trump is doing is much more efficient, much more direct, because he's just finding the people himself and he's going and he's he's pardoning them. But I also think that part of that bureaucracy is like a fundamental fairness and that by bypassing that process, you're bypassing any sense that it is fair, that anyone can have their application for this kind of mercy seriously considered. Arguably, when you're letting someone out of prison early, there should be some caution there, right? I mean, one of the things that the former pardon attorney told me is we have to make sure this is someone who is rehabilitated, who is very unlikely to offend again, that weighs on their conscience. And so if the decision is made slowly with a lot of different gatekeepers, perhaps that makes sense when you're making that kind of a decision. This is a person who committed a crime. But yes, the idea that this process should work for everyone, whoever you are, 
whatever prison you're at, you can file a petition. And if you meet certain criteria, meet certain objective standards, that you will be considered, not that it's a question of how much money or access you have. And that's really the way it's playing out under President Trump. Beth Reinhardt is an investigative reporter for The Post. The Senate will convene as a court of impeachment. The chaplain will lead us in prayer. Today, the Senate heard closing arguments in the impeachment trial of President Trump. President Trump abused the extraordinary powers he alone holds as president of the United States. The only appropriate result here is to acquit the president and to leave it to the voters to choose their president. The Senate is planning to vote on the verdict on Wednesday. But one of our listeners had a question, and it's especially relevant if senators vote to acquit the president. This is Kevin Kelleher from San Jose, California. Can the House impeach President Trump multiple times? Post Reports producer Maggie Penman went to ask our in-house impeachment expert. Who are you and what do you do for The Post? My name is Dan Baltz. I'm a political reporter here at The Post. This is not your first impeachment, right? No, I I was uh, here in the last impeachment. President Clinton has been impeached. The House of Representatives... Uh, In fact, was here during the Nixon impeachment back in 1974. We shall begin our hearings by considering materials relevant to the question of presidential responsibility. What did you think of our listeners' question about whether there could be, in theory, multiple impeachments? It's a very good question and, and one that I think is probably on the minds of a lot of people which is, can a president be impeached more than once? I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional scholar. But based on what I've read and heard, here's what I think. Yes, a president could be impeached more than once. In this case, that would be on the assumption that he is acquitted in the Senate trial, but not for the same charge. So it is possible that the House could go back and take further testimony if they were able to get it, and come up with another article of impeachment, not bearing on Ukraine, but bearing on some other aspect of obstruction of justice or whatever. The second and more understandable one would be if the president is acquitted in this case, goes on to win re-election for a second term, and in his second term engages in conduct that the House deems to be impeachable, that they could go through an entire new proceeding based on whatever that episode happens to be. So politically speaking, is that something that you think they would consider doing, or do you think that that would just not play? Well, you would have to assume that if the president is acquitted in this case and goes on to win re-election, that Democrats would be more cautious in bringing about another impeachment proceeding unless the offense was so grievous, so obvious, and enjoyed such support by the public that they would have no choice but to go ahead. Dan Baltz is a political reporter for The Post. 
That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You may have heard that the Iowa caucuses are taking place tonight. We'll have more on how it played out on Tuesday's episode. But for news and insights before then, you might want to check out our new podcast feed, Election 2020. It's updated daily with the latest election stories from Post Reports, along with some of our other politics podcasts like Can He Do That and The Daily 202. Search for Election 2020 in your podcast app or find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.